You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 13th of March 2022 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Ahead over the next hour, I can promise that Juliet Lindley is going to be here. Good morning, Juliet. Good morning. Well, yes, all eyes at the Vatican are on the Pope's efforts for peace in Ukraine, but they're also looking at just how hard he's willing to be on Russia in order to still maintain a diplomatic balance with Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill, who's refusing to take an anti-war stance. We'll be going beyond the Vatican today as we well. We will. I'll also bring you news from Italy. <laughs> Very Fishermen good. Fishermen and gas. Excellent. Also, <laughs> Florian Egli is here uh, from Four Hours, of course, a regular voice around this table as well. Good morning, Florian. Good morning, Tyler. What do you have for us as well? We're going to speak about um, how an oil and gas ban would hit the Swiss economy and also why our brains start shrinking. Okay, and we'll also pay tribute to Elsa Clench, the trailblazing journalist who brought Haute Couture to global broadcasting. This is Style, and I'm Elsa Clench, reporting on the design worlds of fashion, beauty, and decorating. It's the 13th of March, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very, very sunny, very spring-like Zurich. I have uh, springy Juliet Lindley here. I also have uh, Florian Egley from Four House, of course, two uh, regular guests uh, around this table. Uh, also, I believe it's probably sunny and springy as well uh, down Palm Away. Our Andrew Tucker is also there. We'll be joining him in a moment. Uh, Juliet, good morning. Morning. How are you? Great. So good matcha, to be here. All matcha up already? Yeah, yeah. Two, ma- two vegan matcha lattes down. And uh, Florian has tried it for the first time. He's not happy. He says it tastes like a spinach soup. Yeah, well, yeah. you said it was like sort <laughs> of a spin- smoothie. spinach smoothie. <laughs> smoothie. Florian, h- h- how are you getting on with that now? Sort of three minutes into your yeah, three spinach, minutes into my, spinach matcha my, delight. My spinach matcha. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm hanging in there. So so I have another another 57 minutes to go. So Okay. Next, actually, it's, it's less than that. It's, it's, all, it's only 54 minutes. Uh, Andrew Tuck is also with, with us this morning, normally in London, uh, but he's uh, he's found a bit of a Mediterranean uh, perch this morning uh, for us as well. He's uh, he's in Palma. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. Yeah, I'm on the real front line of breaking news here for you, so I'm well, I'll bring you bring you stories from the bed. Andrew, I was uh, I was a little further west than you. I was out in the in the middle of the Atlantic and came back uh, yesterday. I was not sailing anywhere. I was, uh, but I was on the island of of Madeira, and it is quite strange. I'm not sure what the tempo of 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 Spanish news is, but also in Portugal as well. You have papers like Espresso, and I'm sure the same in in Spain. El Pace, of course, are doing a good job of of coverage. But when you're in the middle of Europe, and even when you're, of course, in a, in a major news center like London. Ukraine is that much closer, but um, as you drift out into the Atlantic and head further west, uh, that story does seem to yeah, m- move away, not just physically, uh, but also it seems to drop out of the headlines a little bit. Yeah, I think when you look at El Pais this morning, they're, they're leading with the, you know, the attacks in Ukraine uh, uh, overnight, but actually you turn a few, a few pages in and the, and the story changes. And, and not being daft, but looking here, literally at the local news here, of course, people are trying to find an angle on, on the Ukraine story. So one of the things is that the farmers here depend on feed that comes from corn that comes from Ukraine. So they're saying that the price of food is going to shoot up. And there was a, some panic buying, apparently, in supermarkets last week. 
but on the whole people are worried about bigger things they're worried about is is the tourism season going to be a success here because that impacts people's jobs and uh, and an island where people are on unemployment benefit in the winter months because there just isn't the, the the number of jobs to go around so there are other concerns here on, on the ground. It's, it's, it's not just Ukraine being talked about. And Andrew, do you have any sense how the market uh, is is feeling? And I'm talking about the tourism market uh, because I've been talking to a couple of people from the aviation industry, also uh, from the hotel sectors as well. We were speaking to people from Portugal, uh, from Portugal Tourism. And there is a sense yet again that people will you know, be sticking around in Europe. Will they be relying as much on the US? Uh, you know, potentially not. But is there is there a take from uh, Mallorca? Well, in fact, there was a, an interview this week with um, a woman called Carmen Planas, who's the head of the, the Confederation of Balearic Business Associations. And she's a kind of a, a big voice when it comes to what the temperature is of the market. And she said, look, it's going to be 2024 before the Balearics get back to the kinds of numbers of tourists that you saw. They're a little bit nervous again about what's happening. And there's not much exposure to Russian tourists here. They're, 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 of course, there are some. And I looked at the numbers of houses sold here last year. So last year, uh, 1,200 houses were sold to people with uh, uh, Russian passports or who had domiciled in Russia. But three or four years ago, it was roughly like 4,000 houses a year were being sold to Russians. So there is a big Russian community here, but it is not the kind of exposure as to say if there was a dent from, say, British tourism. Well, interestingly, you know, I went to see check out El, um, El Corte Inglés yeah, yesterday, and there in store you have you know directions where to go in French and in English, but in Russian also, and on every floor there was instructions in Russian. So there is going to be some exposure, but I think people are just nervous in general that people are still slow about getting moving. Andrew, we're going to do a quick whip around the table to, of course, see what else is making news. Uh, Florian, you talked about one story uh, in, in our intro, but uh, maybe something else you want to start with? Or of course, you can go with uh, with what you promised at the top of the show as well. Um, yeah, let's go with with, um, with what I promised, um, Russian sanctions um, effect on Switzerland. Because what's interesting is that, um, you know, Switzerland is not very um, exposed to oil and gas from Russia. So that's not a big issue. But a lot of the resource trading happens in Switzerland. About 80%, in fact, of Russian oil and gas is traded through Switzerland. Um, and so there have been now over the weekend, the first study has been released to try to quantify what would that actually mean for the Swiss economy. Um, and the group at ETH said it would be about a three to four percent dip in the GDP um, if you know there were a Western ban on Russian oil and gas. Um, and interestingly, it's not that many jobs. It's mainly it's mainly GDP because these it's few jobs that create a lot of value because they're high, highly paid jobs, of course, mainly in Geneva and in the in the area around Zug. Um, so generally, this has been taken up um, actually by politicians with you know, quite some optimism as it it's not as costly as expected. And I think we could expect less, um, you know, opposition, at least from the Swiss side, if there were um, a move in that direction, because there, previously or previous to that study, there was always the real concern that we're going to lose a lot of highly paid jobs and a lot of high value activities um, around these resource trades. And now it seems that it's actually manageable. Um, and, you know, um, coupled with the, um, the response to kind of the phase out of Corona, these economists say it would even on the net um, not might not even lead to a recession in Switzerland. So I think politically, um, you know, 
tougher actions on Russia have become more feasible over the weekend in Switzerland. And tell us uh, th- that sense of soul searching that we saw uh, certainly in Switzerland, uh, you know, of course, hours, days, uh, of course, after the, the attack uh, on, on Ukraine, that sense of sometimes just uncomfortable relationship uh, that this country has, not just with, with Russia, but of course, of course, having this position of, of neutrality. Maybe let's start there, uh, this, this notion that this has perhaps, you know, change not just brand Switzerland um, and and its positioning, but also certainly uh, change things within the foreign ministry as well. Yes, for sure. I mean, I think there has been a a real reckoning um, in the past in the past two to three weeks um, within the foreign ministry within Switzerland um, as to how do we actually define um, this neutrality. And I think, um, you know, one of the or a piece of that is that Switzerland has always been very, you know, open and happy to accommodate business of Russian oligarchs, of course. I mean, they have, um, it's not the yachts like, like in Italy, but it's the chalets in Gstaad, right? Um, it's a lot of them, um, you know, live in, in St. Moritz. So um, I think, you know, Switzerland has been extremely open and not asked many questions. And we're, we're starting to see some of the repercussions of it that, you know, you can't credibly say you're neutral just because you've written it in some foreign policy document and then, um, you know, be extremely, you know, involved in the businesses and private lives of, of these people. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just basically a contradiction that becomes becomes quite visible and quite obvious. And and to some extent, you know, what we're seeing now is, I think, um, the result of of a lack of institutions in Russia, which was really largely driven by these super rich people who um, who were happy, like the West was happy to watch them in the 90s plunder um, all the assets and Switzerland was too. So I think there has been a, quite a reckoning that, you know, neutrality has to be acted through meaningful policy and not just in a document. And and I think we're, we're on that path and we're, we're starting to see what that means in reality. Um, we're going to jump uh, to uh, Juliet uh, right now. Breaking news from the Vatican. Well, as you know, the two cardinals that were sent by Pope Francis as papal envoys have arrived in Ukraine. One of them is Canadian, Cardinal Michael Czerny, and the other is Polish, Konrad Kraniewski. And their mission, the Pope says, is to serve the people and to help them. Now, they're there to reiterate the Pope's willingness to do everything possible for peace, and the Pope has been decrying the war. But as we heard earlier in the news, um, Vatican observers are clearly noting that the Pope has never used the words Russia or aggression in his public statements. And as soon as the uh, invasion happened on February 24th, he got in his car and he went to the Russian embassy to the Holy See across town, as opposed to summoning the ambassador. He didn't do the same for the Ukrainian ambassador, although he did phone Zelensky. So there is a bit of an impression that uh, there's a bit of an imbalanced position on Russia. Now, from the start of his pontificate, Francis has been keen to keep open channels of dialogue with Russia. So he's met Putin three times, 2013, 15 and 19. And uh, the Pope is seeming to prefer not to go for the jugular in response to uh, to Russia's aggression, although his foreign minister is clearly taking a more aggressive stance. And he has um, talked about the war that is unleashed by Russia and and. Pietro Parolin, the foreign minister, is saying that the Vatican would like to help to mediate. But what is the issue here? It's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. He's called Alexei Kirill. And clearly the Pope is trying to maintain um, a balance there because Kirill is definitely not speaking out against the war. And as you might know, um, he's actually Alexei Kirill was apparently a former KGB asset. And as we know, you know, the, 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 the Russian Orthodox Church was reborn during World War, II, World War II by Stalin. And although it was reconstituted, it was done so on Soviet 
state terms. So it's it's sort of a de facto part of the regime. So the Pope is having to tread rather carefully. And what are the papers saying? Do you, uh, do you, are you seeing something, if you look in Latter Public or elsewhere, where people are saying, come on. Uh, yeah, it's, Pope, it's ta- come it's, on. Yeah, come stance. on, Pope, take I a mean, stance. Yeah, yeah, you're seeing a lot of that. But then, you know, the Italian papers are also looking at other perhaps issues that are more uh, pertinent to their daily lives. Mm. So you've got a massive hike in um, price at the pump. And so we've got Roberto Cingolani, the Minister for Ecological Transition, and he's calling out saying there's massive fraud and colossal um, uh, irregularities taking place with with uh, with with the um, the prices going up massively at the pump. And you've got truckers uh, similar to Canada. No, these ones are going to strike because of the prices. I don't think there's of so gas many not ones. going on about COVID. Here. I, I just I just and want fisher boats. They're not going out either because of the price that it costs them to get their boats out because of gas. And are you taking your boat out today in Palma? <laughs> uh, no, I don't quite have the boat yet, but um, I, I'll, I'll see what happens <laughs> this, this summer. But um, I also just thought it would just a, a bit of lightening mood. I, I, I do check a lot of the, the kind of Russian sites at the moment. And just uh, uh, I thought this would entertain you that Pravda has a nice column today about goodbye to trash and bad taste, which is about the departure of the, the likes of McDonald's and uh, Starbucks. And it says that uh, these companies are leaving Russia, which means that Russia, the Russian public will no longer be tempted to indulge in food that is not food and coffee that is not coffee. And it goes on to say, we're also going to lose Heineken, which in the Netherlands is now considered owl's piss, which I have a phrase I've never heard before. Owl's anyway, piss, okay. Well, yeah, owl's piss. <laughs> I'm not sure what the translation of, of, that, of that is. But... They may have Google translated, I think, this for the, the British audience. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and to tell me, uh, as you said, you've been looking at the at, you've been looking at TASS, of course, the state news agency, um, Pravda as well. Is there do, do you see any I'm, I'm not going to say, of course, voice of dissent, but any sort of moderating line as well or not really? I, w- I would I would say that they're keen when there is an option of, of discussions and they, they, they seem to support those. But you just see no coverage of the war at all. There, there is there is no there is no imagery. There is. There is, there is certainly no shot down helicopters and there's none of that. And indeed, one of the, the headlines on Pravda today is Lukashenko tells Putin that Ukraine was planning to attack Belarus. So you can see the, the, the level of kind of engagement with the, real, the story. There's, there's nothing really there to enlighten their audiences. I just want to maybe on a lighter note as well, but of course, we've seen, you know, looking at our monitors, watching the rolling news uh, and the cold evenings in the Ukraine. Andrew, do you have a view on correspondence wearing branded outerwear when <laughs> when news outlets of course are supposed to be very impartial and you know if you're the bbc you don't want to have any you, know, you don't want to be presenting sort of any brands but then you see people out there and they're in their their north face or their patagonia or their fiel raven or whatever the brand may be uh, do you think that there should be some block because you know you do see logos blocked out from time to time but it, i think i'm wondering if this is actually a news gathering issue Although I always find that the, the, the blocking out of, of logos so useless because if anyone ever blocks out the apple on their laptop and it's open, you, you it's know like, I wonder what's there. It out, it's an apple. You know that there's an apple behind there. And I don't know what Patagonia, obviously a very peace-loving, calm uh, brand who, who doesn't like to get involved in, in anything like, like war will think about correspondence wearing its gear. But certainly North Face seems to be the, the, the go-to brand. Um, and I'm not sure if there's any marketing opportunities for them there, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, you you do catch the logos of, of these people out 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 in the out in the field.
And why don't we, uh, if we don't have time at the end of the show, let's look ahead a little bit. Um, it's going to be, uh, you're coming back, of course, from Palma, I hope. We have a bit of a big week, as always, but it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting Thursday, an exciting Thursday for us. Yes, uh, we're going to mark 15 years for with all, all of the team and a, a few of the cast from uh, yesteryear as well are going to come back and uh, a, a big party to mark 15 years of, of Monocle and how amazing that will be. It's a really great achievement by everybody. And I think, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting to see over, even over the past couple of weeks, you know, that the numbers of people coming to listen to this, to listen to, to Monocle 24, is some of the highest numbers we've ever had, the, the sign-up rate for the, for the Monocle Minute. So to be so nimble and so engaged uh, after 15 years and to be you know, adapting to a changing news environment and still being successful, I think is, you know, is, is, is certainly a cause of raising, raising my hopefully more than one glass on, on Thursday. Indeed. Um, Andrew, we are going to catch up with you, um, uh, of course, on Thursday, um, but also a little bit later in the program um, as well. Uh, Florian, um, we're going to also, we're going to be heading to Odessa. Uh, well, we're going to be heading to the Ukraine in the moment, not specifically Odessa. Um, but before that, anything else in the papers uh, from that's caught your eye? Um, you know, Swiss, Swiss, uh, <laughs> Swiss political reactions to this. So it goes from car free Sundays um, to speed limits on highways um, to, you know, stocking up, stocking up on gas to subsidizing um, gas all outright. So I think, um, you know, the, the political it's interesting that we see the political parties engaging in this already, I would say, just um, to promote their agendas. Um, and one um, comment that I read and something that that I'm particularly, you know, worried or interested in um, is, you know, how long will this last? Like, how long will this uh, wave of solidarity last? And um, at what point in time will um, the right wing party in Switzerland, just as in, you know, many other countries um, um, start being less friendly towards uh, refugees coming from UK Ukraine, you know, when national elections are coming up, this will be a topic. Um, and the big question I think that is debated right now is how can we prepare for that and how can we ensure kind of a culture um, that, you know, makes it more difficult that that this topic will pop up in one, two, maybe six months, um, basically, depending on the election cycle and and really be used um you know, very strategically by some parties um, and, and, and kind of shape a discourse that is very similar to what we've seen during COVID as well, right? Um, where in the beginning it was just cohesion and society stood together. And then, you know, all of a sudden it started to become this political issue that, that parties really strategically exploited. Um, so, yeah, this is something I follow really closely and I'm really, you know, I mean, we're, we're trying to do some things. There has been a, an association stand with Ukraine was founded in, in Zurich, actually very spontaneously last week, um, organized a, a big demonstration also in, in conjunction with the city, um, the city government. And it's really, you know, trying to become a force that is multi-party, that, you know, uh, rallies everybody around and behind. And so I think we need more of these initiatives. Um, um, and I follow that very closely. It gives me some hope, but I'm also skeptical as to how long this will last. Juliet, uh, do we want to stay in the Vatican or you said we're going to cross cross borders uh, potentially? I, how about I cross to a Swiss church story, which okay. kind of combines our two passions. And Switzerland's University of Fribourg, which, as you know, has the largest theology department in Switzerland. Oh, yes, I knew that. I knew you knew that. Florian also knew that. He's nodding. They've suspended the chairman of the Department for External Church Relations. The university said it was disappointed the gentleman didn't feel able to oppose Russia's clear violation of international law. Here's the kicker. 
Who is that professor? He is Metropolitan Hilarion, a Russian Orthodox bishop. And he's one of the most prominent figures in the Russian Orthodox Church, which brings us back to the Kirill issue. And you must know that Russian Orthodox, um, that the church has an estimated 150 million members. So it, it does account for half of the world's Orthodox Christians. So it's a mm. big story here in Switzerland, too. And if you're the patriarch in Russia as well, I, I can recall. So he's the second... Uh, heaviest user of government jets as well. So after Mr. Putin, so when it actually comes to, and I, I can remember flying into Moscow at one point. On one said, of his jets. Not one of his jets. <laughs> no, but we were delayed. We had to circle and circle. And then when we landed, I asked the, the pilot on Scandinavia and I said, what, you know, what happened or why are we circling so long? And he said, actually, well, they had to close the airspace because the patriarch was taking off. That's, I don't know if that happens even for the Pope, does it? Maybe, oh, no. no. No, he flies at Italia. He fly, well, Ita, but not, Ita, not anymore. Ita, Ita, as it's called <laughs> now, or he's hitching a ride with uh, with someone else. Uh, we're heading um, over to the Ukraine now. I'm happy to say that we're joined by Vladislav uh, Davidson. He's the author of From Odessa with Love. He's also a fellow at the Atlantic Council. Um, good morning. Morning. Can you hear me? Tyler. I can hear you very well. Uh, actually, uh, the, the connection is, is better to Ukraine than it is to, to Mallorca, uh, it seems. Uh, good morning. Uh, we're, we've been, of course, uh, we're looking at, at the monitors here in, uh, in studio, uh, Vladislav. Uh, and, of course, uh, all the tickers are dominated this morning, of course, by, is it six, is it eight, is it more, uh, of course, missiles that, of course, struck very, very close now uh, to the extreme west uh, of the Ukraine, uh, very close, of course, to, to the Polish border. Uh, and, and this, of course, becomes very much a talking point, one that, of course, you know, people have been certainly foreshadowing uh, over the past few weeks, what happens when things start to inch further west. Um, maybe your take on that for us uh, to start. It was, always, it was always obvious that they were going to hit the west uh, next to the Polish border sooner rather than later. Uh, they did hit a couple of airports. They they hit, uh, and by way, I mean the Russians, they, they blew up the landing strips of, of several airports in the West, including Nrovne when I was there, uh, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in Nrovne about eight, nine, ten days ago for, for three nights. They hit the airport while I was there. They didn't touch the rest of the city because there was nothing else in it. We're blowing up. Then they hit uh, Ivano-Frankivsk airport. They hit, uh, I, think, I believe, Lviv airport. So it wasn't the first week and a half that they were touching those airports, but those were secondary targets for them, by them I mean the Russians again, in case uh, NATO started flying in troops or, or whatever. They were, they were concerned about those airports being used. So for the first 10 days of a war, the only time that they hit next to the European border was to blow up airports. Now they're actually hitting targets. And um, that, that is to probe what the Europeans will do and to scare them, to scare us. And what does this mean uh, in terms of, of course, the ongoing topic of air superiority uh, as well? Is there any sense of how many active runways are still left in, in the country? Uh, of course, I would imagine that uh, no one wants to talk this up, certainly from the Ukrainian side. But uh, is, is there still capacity or is this a major blow if they've been hitting uh, airstrips and, and I would imagine cratering them um, in the west of the country? They have been cratering them. Listen, I, I, I'm not I'm not a military guy, and I, even though uh, I have excellent connections, they're really not interested in giving that kind of information out. Out in my conversations with Western military analysts, they've told me that 80% of the airstrips in the country have been damaged, to say the least. Um, I, I'm I'm actually surprised that the that, that the airstrips lasted this long. And it's only because of the fact that the Russians were fighting a war that they, that they were not prepared for and fighting incompetently that the airstrips lasted three weeks. The Ukrainians still have an air force, 
but they more often than not those guys who get on those planes they're they're flying they're flying suicide missions uh, no, again no one tells you what the survival rate for a ukrainian sortie is over the over the uh, ukrainian sky because the the Russians uh, the Russians have lost the information where the propaganda war and the Ukrainians don't tell us what their survival rate is for those guys flying those planes. But I, I imagine it's less than half. If you're a Ukrainian pilot getting into a plane now, you have less than 50 50 sh- chance of coming back. And so if you fly twice, you're just not going to come back. So uh, Vlasla, just to it, tell us, does that mean that uh, it, it's a bit it's a bit of a moot discussion now? This uh, question of these uh, Polish MiG 29s, uh, of course, it was a very embarrassing issue um, yeah. for the West uh, la- last week. Uh, there is still talk about trying to revive this deal, but if uh, there's only well 20 percent in dwindling uh, runway capacity left, um, is that story over? Uh, again, that that is my that is the twenty percent number is an estimate that I get from Western military analysts. That is not a that is that is just a guesstimate. That is not a number that anyone in the West has, unless they're they're in American and British intelligence, which I'm not. But 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 your your question is quite correct. It's important to give the Ukrainians anti-air stuff, and they will not be able to win if the if if the Russians keep dominating the air, which which to a certain point they have not been because the Ukrainian air anti-air defenses have mostly been, well, not mostly, but about half their capacity is still up. They're still knocking down Grad rockets and Iskander rockets and occasionally knocking down Russian helicopters and, and fixed-wing planes which fly too low. But it, it would be great to give the Ukrainians these planes, but I'm just not sure how long they would survive anyway. And the, the Russians can bomb them from the air. They've been very good at bombing uh, Ukrainian planes from the air. But one thing that the Ukrainians got really lucky with, it's actually quite funny, because the majority of the Ukrainian Air Force has been stripped for parts. They have uh, they have all these old MiGs and training planes, which are just sitting outside of ra- runways, which they're just ca- being cannibalized for parts. So they have all these Ukrainian planes sitting alongside uh, various hangars and airstrips. And they're, very, they're basically dead planes, and they're just sitting there. But they've served as decoys because for the Russians, they have no idea which planes are actually in, in capacity and which are in uh, uh, are being cannibalized for parts. So they've lost a lot of just inert planes, which are just sitting there next to the runway. And that's actually helped them keep their, their planes not blown up. But they're, they're flying very much fewer missions now because they know what's going to happen to those pilots. Let us love again. You don't have a crystal ball sitting over there, and as you said, you're not part of the intelligence services. But if we look ahead, as we are into a third week, as this marches towards one month of this of this conflict, you know, we had obviously a lot of calls, and we continue to have calls for, of course, a no fly zone. That has been really, you know, almost become a bit of a of a mantra. We've seen this also picked up, of course, but in protests and in other Western cities as well. Where do you see things moving next? I mean, you know, what what can be the next level of 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 appeal? Of course, aside from a a a, a joined up ceasefire uh, and and obviously looking at where where this goes. But uh, what happens with the Zelensky government in terms of of what they can reasonably demand moving forward? Well, every day that the Ukrainian government survives, they they've they've won the day. I mean, they're they're basically like. Uh, they're basically like Armenia or Israel now. They're, they have a bad situation security-wise, and every day, every week that they survive, they, they've they've won the day. So for for them, they've been trading territory for time, and they've been doing quite well at it because the Russians they they don't have the capacity to actually take towns, they don't have the right troops, right troop strength, 
They don't have the cohesion, the mass. The country is about the size of France, and the population is vigorously, vigorously resisting, resisting like madmen, like like fierce berserkers. The Ukrainians are fighting, and a demoralized Russian army, which does not have the capacity to uh, to to just take that much territory and occupy 37 million people. What are you going to do? You need a you need you need a couple of million people to occupy them. So they're gonna they're gonna be drawing down at a certain point. They're gonna be stepping down, looking for face saving measures. The Ukrainians are going to swallow some sort of very very unappetizing uh, concessions and compromises to get this war over. I I don't even know what they will be. Certainly they'll, they'll give up some things uh, because again forces on the side of the Russians. But one thing you're going to see is uh, face saving creeping motions from the Russians. A second thing you're going to see is they're running out of out of troops who want to fight and they just don't have enough guys and throwing more reserves into the fray may not even help anything so we're going to be internationalizing this conflict by bringing in all sorts of proxies um uh wagner proxy guys from africa african guys from uh the central republic african republic arab guys from uh syria who were fighting for assad they're, they're going to be throwing them into kiev as, as meat uh, and because they're good at um, at at house to house urban warfare, so that's not a great signal that the Russians need to be bringing in mercenaries. You know, it's just not a great signal from their standpoint. Vladislav uh, Davidson, um, author of uh, From Odessa with Love, uh, also a fellow um, at the Atlantic Council. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us from the Ukraine uh, this morning. It's uh, just ten thirty-two and 30 seconds here in Zurich. Uh, time to head back to London. Emma Nelson's there with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Russian warplanes have struck a military base near to the Polish border being used to train foreign fighters. The attack on the base at Yavoriv is believed to be the most westernmost attack by the Russians since the invasion began. France has said there's no indication that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is ready to make peace. A phone call among the French president, the German chancellor and Mr Putin produced no mention of a ceasefire. And according to the New York Times, hope has faded for a handful of Western companies eager to recover their planes leased to airlines in Russia. The authorities there intent on keeping foreign registered aircraft within the country. As of Thursday, there were 523 aircraft leased to Russian carriers by companies outside the country. And those are the headlines back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thanks very much, uh, Emma. I just want, I want to just pick up on the, the conversation that we were having with, with Vladislav uh, D- Davidson. Florian, can you tell me... Um, your take on this point that we we're now at a level or a stage of this conflict where they're having to, of course, bring in Thank more you. mercenaries, uh, where, where we're hearing, uh, of, of course, uh, that there is, uh, yeah, I mean, whether we, we've been here about the Wagner people for a while, but now that also that we might be having, of course, mercenaries coming in who've been fighting on the streets of Aleppo, the outskirts of, of Damascus. Uh, what does that say? Because it's kind of, when you think about this this military machine, which, of course, uh, yes, we, we believe is well-armed. If you, if you go to, of course, Russia's Far East, we think about the borders of the Baltic, um, or maybe it's not that case. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's a big defeat. Um, I think it's a big sign, a sign of weakness in some sense. Because also, you know, we've we've heard a lot about this, these these Wagner Wagner troops, but then effectively th- those are typically a couple of hundred, um, and they're they're kind of special ops, right? So, I mean, it's I don't see how this is going to work out. Like how they're going to assemble people like from countries all across. I mean, this is like a UN blue helmet mission in the end, right? Just for the wrong purpose. Um, so how they assemble, I mean, soldiers or mercenaries from all different countries. 
countries and and whether you know they will be able to communicate i mean there are so many questions around this i think um you know if they have to go to that stage then you know it it will be extremely ugly you know because there will be very little uh, i think guidance or, or you know legal restrictions to to what is happening but i also cannot see this leading anywhere because i think we already see the organizational difficulties that that the russian military has now you now imagine you know bringing in people with different that speak different languages with different cultural backgrounds different trainings i i don't see this happening um yeah i really don't and i think one point that we've heard that is really interesting is you know that every day or every week that um that uh, that uh, that um people around Zelensky and of course also um, Zelensky himself survive is a win. Um, I think this is this is extremely important and I was wondering for a long time like how how they're actually protected like um, what's happening there I think we know and, who, very, and who's around exactly, them as well. We know very little about this I mean, we know that that uh, the US are sharing all their intelligence um, arguably with the Ukrainians I mean that helps but who is actually around them and, and they, they seem very well protected mm. and I think that is one of the key strategies of the West at the moment that we don't hear a lot about, but I think it's absolutely crucial, you know, buying this time um, and, and, you know, getting closer to a negotiation. Um, Florent, just uh, we're going to stay on uh, certainly a geopolitical point uh, as well. I'm happy to say uh, that our news editor, Chris Chermak, um, he's joining us uh, from uh, Antalya uh, this morning or this afternoon, as, as, as the case uh, may be, because, of course, the Antalya uh, Diplomacy Forum is on. 50 global leaders, including uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, uh, is there. And, of course, um, I would imagine a rather uh, packed uh, schedule. Uh, and, of course, we've seen uh, a number of uh, high-profile uh, faces from various foreign ministries, uh, of course, popping up on screens um, as well. But um, Chris Chermak, good morning. Uh, very good to, to have you on the program. Thank you very much. Good afternoon from a sunny Antalya. Very good to hear. Uh, maybe just uh, for those uh, who uh, are not following the uh, the events uh, of the uh, Antalya Diplomacy Forum, uh, set it up uh, for us uh, and, and certainly the attendees um, and the conversations uh, that you've been dipping in on. You know, it is really interesting, Tyler, because this is a very young forum, this Antalya Diplomacy Forum. It's only the second time they've done this, the first time last year. But it already has almost a, a mini United Nations feel to it. There's nearly 100 countries represented here. Some that I've spoken to here say the pandemic is part of a reason for that, that it's just the timing of it was so crucial that people are eager to meet, eager to talk diplomacy, eager to meet face to face. And so you've just had so many incredible uh, bilaterals taking place, including, of course, Ukraine and Russia's foreign ministers. And it, it's just interesting in that sense to hear all the discussions here. Turkey very much felt there was a gap maybe uh, in the international sort of more multilateral forum architecture, a lack of focus on diplomacy specifically. That's where they're sort of targeting all of their attention with this forum. But it's just such an amazing mix of people from Ukraine, Russia, but also the US, Europe, but also the Taliban is here, their foreign minister as well. I spoke to Venezuela's foreign minister. So it's just an interesting mix of individuals that are at this forum. 
And when we look at the, at the topics, and you said, of course, there's a variety of, of bilateral uh, side discussions uh, going on. This is also quite a set piece, though, for, for Turkey. The Turks are uh, have been quite wily uh, diplomats, uh, even since the start of, of this conflict. Many have been saying, you know, will this be a bit of a, a, a Turkey moment uh, to a bit of a redemption moment, uh, maybe on, on the world stage as well. So, of course, uh, this, this timing in Antalya has certainly help them. So maybe if you could, you know, somehow uh, maybe deconstruct it for us, how much of this is a soft power play just for brand Turkey and whoever comes along and the outcomes, that's great. Or would you say that there is also some sense of pushing for some type of of outcome before everyone gets on their planes and, and heads out of there? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned redemption there, Tyler, because I've spoken to a few Turkish diplomats and and sort of put that to them, but they they bristle at the notion a little bit because they argue that Turkey has always had a soft power element to it. But one of the issues is that perhaps given the region that Turkey lives in, hard power took a priority, if you will, over the last decade, the war in Syria in particular. But Turkish diplomats here emphasize they've always had this historic east-west connection. And in addition to that, there's just this recognition that they live in an incredibly volatile region, of course, not just Syria, but now Ukraine and Russia as well, uh, and that they have a role to play in that, that they are eager to become mediators and diplomats that can kind of work between different sides here. And that's really what this diplomacy forum uh, is about for Turkey. In terms of outcomes, yeah, it's a little harder to say. There was this meeting of Ukraine and Russia's foreign ministers with with Turkey, Turkey's foreign minister presiding over that. They didn't reach any key agreements on Thursday, but that said, uh, the, the, the meeting went back to Vladimir Putin, who said there was some positive momentum in talks. Everyone I speak to here just says it's an important sign that different groups like this are talking to each other. And that goes back to these bilaterals I was saying. The U.S. and the Taliban and Qatar, for example, met as well on the sidelines of this. And even Turkey is trying to put on a, a good face, if you will. Turkey and Armenia's foreign ministers, for example, met on the sidelines of this. They've been trying to normalize relations as well. So there is a push, if you will, by Turkey to say there is a positive here. Diplomacy still works. We need to work better to prevent conflicts. We need to be real that conflicts exist in the world, like we've seen with Ukraine and Russia. But there are still better ways to talk about diplomacy to prevent conflicts from happening in the future. Chris, just before we go, you said this is a young form in years, but is it also a young uh, form in terms of concept um, as well? I mean, on, on, at first I was thinking, is this the South by Southwest uh, of, of of diplomacy initiatives, give it, given it's in, in sunny Antalya, or is it still a rather stiff, formal um, affair, as these things can be, and, and certainly um, in, in, in that part of the world? Uh, that's an interesting point, Tyler. I, I wouldn't say so, to be honest. I think from people I've spoken to here, they really do praise the Turkish authorities for uh, the informality, actually, of this forum, the fact that they've set up here in this Nest Convention Center, which itself was only built three years ago uh, to really sort of put Antalya on the map. But they really do praise the informality, the amount of bilaterals, the ability of foreign ministers to organize those bilaterals. So on the one hand, yes, this forum had a very specific 
uh, recoding diplomacy was the topic about the language of diplomacy, how it needs to change. There were dozens upon dozens of panels discussing everything under the sun when it comes to diplomacy. But at the same time, really the praise for this forum came from the, the informality of it, that they might have had an agenda, but they didn't really focus too much on the agenda. And there was just lots of meeting rooms at this Nest Convention Center for foreign ministers from all around the world to meet and discuss whatever they need to discuss, having also not met for the last two years very easily. So that was just such a key element. And that it was some wonder will be interesting to watch going forward. Was this a particularly productive forum because of the pandemic, because of the moment, also the Ukraine-Russia war, which is, of course, on everybody's mind as well? Will that continue next year? Will they be able to get the same group of people or will other forums take over? That's one question even, frankly, Turkish diplomats have on their minds. How long will they be able to keep this going? But for today, it has to be said, or this these last couple of days, it was a very productive, informal session for diplomats. And just quickly before we go, uh, Florian Egli has a, a quick question for you. I think it's super interesting. And, and what, I, what I'm wondering is, Chris, do you see this forum being um, so successful as well? Because, you know, um, Turkey and, and especially President Erdogan is also kind of in between an autocracy and a democracy. So that gives kind of an appeal to, you know, all kind of different, different um, political systems, you know, being um, in conflict in Syria, of course, with Russia, but then also with the EU um, as, part of, as part of the refugee, um, you know, coming out of Syria. So do you see this kind of being, you know, part of many conflicts? Conflicts and and also kind of in between political systems as a factor that might you know be successful for the future for this um, forum as well. It's really interesting, Florian. I have tried to pose that question to a few Turkish diplomats. It's not an easy question to pose, and they tend to bristle at this notion and kind of say, well. You know, no, no, no democracy is perfect, so they don't, they don't tend to agree with that in some ways. But that said, I think one of the focuses of this forum certainly has been on going back to the roots of preventing conflict, protecting territorial integrity. And yes, there has been this notion that while there's shock in Europe that this happens other, for other parts of the world, including Turkey, conflict is more of a fact of life. So yes, war is back in Europe. Um, but, you know, we just need to focus on preventing conflicts and protecting territorial integrity. And in that sense, I think there has also been, you get from various people that are here, this, this sense perhaps that We've gone too far in the West in talking, connecting sort of diplomacy with Western liberal values, if you will, and that we need to take a little bit of a back seat from that and focus more on the roots of actual genuine conflict. And even the Europeans that I've spoken to here, in a way, are grateful for that, have made the point that we don't really care who is doing the diplomacy at this point, given what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, for example. We just need somebody to be involved. So they welcome Turkey being, yes, this sort of middle that has relationships with both as a potential mediator in that conflict and others because, you know, yes, Western values is one thing and we should be promoting them, but we just need to stop conflicts from happening at this point. Chris Chermak, our news editor at the uh, Antalya Diplomacy, Diplomacy Forum, uh, I should say, in uh, Turkey. Thanks very much uh, for that. We're going uh, away for a very short break. We'll be back right after this. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. 
It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that in 2020, some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely gonna make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 20.00 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay. Juliet Lindley is also uh, with us here in Zurich, also Florian Egley. Uh, but we're heading to Hong Kong. It's, uh, I think it's uh, 1746, uh, almost 1747 there uh, right now. James Chambers is our bureau chief in Hong Kong. James, it's been a while. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, so tell us uh, if we uh, have been uh, and if we can believe that the headlines uh, and of course we've seen these uh, seen the story in outlets everywhere you are now really dealing with the, the biggest spike uh, that you've seen throughout this this pandemic uh, and of course all eyes on Hong Kong particularly those of Beijing um, and how this is uh, this is being handled but uh, maybe just uh, bring us up to speed on that that's right. I mean, it's, it's always a bit weird in Hong Kong when you read the headlines and then look outside the bureau where, you know, today it's feeling very summery. We've got the doors wide open on the shop. I've got my shorts on for the first time and there's some people outside uh, drinking glasses of red wine. So, um, you know, you see that and then you read uh, the headlines about how this is the, uh, the, the worst we've had it. Um, you know, you've always got to uh, take it with a pinch of salt, but that is true. Uh, Hong Kong has done very well up to now in keeping the uh, keeping a lid on on COVID-19, but with Omicron, um, it's uh, it's arrived, uh, and the government uh, has been caught out. It wasn't prepared for this, and it has um, you know it, it's taken over, and and the government's lost control. Um, they've called on the mainland to to help out, um, and they've sent down the cavalry. Uh, but, you know, as people are pointing out, the mainland hasn't dealt with an Omicron outbreak either, uh, although there are some early signs that it's going to have to deal with it now. Um, and it seems like the, the, the Beijing uh, contingent are doing a lot of uh, backseat driving. Um, mm. So the, the gov government here have uh, done so many U-turns, I've, I've kind of lost count of, of what direction we're facing in now. James, maybe just on on that point about, uh, of course, uh, you know, Be Beijing. Obviously, uh, they're 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 trying to be on the front foot, but we've seen you know nowhere um, you know on on this planet has been able to get away from from Omicron. And of course, we have seen numbers going up um, in China proper um, as well. Is there much discussion, as much as there can be discussion, uh, around this? Uh, because of course, uh, yeah, I mean, Xi Jinping has wanted to stick with his his zero policy, but. Uh, we, we've seen pretty much you know, most leaders, uh, the majority of leaders around the world, just saying that it was a policy that might have made sense at the beginning, but everyone's had to back down from that. Everyone, except for China so far, and they are they are sticking with it. Uh, the you know, the Premier Li Keqiang uh, just uh, confirmed that uh, last week at the end of their uh, National People's Congress. Uh, but there has there have been some statements coming out, various uh, kind of Chinese experts 
that are starting to create a little bit of uh, kind of wiggle room for them to uh, to change their strategy. Um, they're saying it's currently based on science. It's currently based on um, the the vaccines that are available, um, and that uh, you know that their strategy is called you know dynamic zero COVID. And that dynamic word uh, added to the front of it is uh, you know means it could be anything. Mm. Uh, we're still we're still on dynamic zero COVID here, uh, and we're having you know thirty thousand cases a day. So they are creating the space. Uh, for them to 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 exit, but you know, right now they are still paying lip service to this whole um, zero COVID strategy. Let's just look out across the the straits, um, and that means direction, of course, uh, Taipei to Taiwan, uh, and and certainly what is happening there with reservists and and you know i think in any analysis everyone has been swinging the spotlight to what of course uh, the the conflict in ukraine means for uh for taiwan uh but it sounds like there's a maybe a few more drills than normal going on over there yeah by the you know by the if you read all the news you'd think that uh, the russian invasion has made you know the taiwanese realize what threat they're under but of course uh, a, a bit like the Ukrainians been warning us since 2014 and even beforehand that, that Russia is going to to attack the Taiwanese you know live under that threat and they have done uh, since uh, you know 1949 so uh, you know they've been making plans for this since then uh, but um, you know they have been stepping up uh, preparations under President Tsai Tsai Ing-wen she on Saturday was visiting uh, reservists in Taiwan because uh, she's launched this new agency. It's called the All Out Defense Mobilization Mobilization Agency, um, and the plan is to to it's get very catchy. in. It's very catchy. I, I think the acronym might be ADMA, um, which you know <laughs> okay. it might take off. Uh, and the plan is that um, you know they have uh, they have conscription in in Taiwan, but once people leave the army, they don't have to do that much uh, training. So they've just launched this new. 14-day reservist uh, training, and, and it's being billed as the the toughest yet. Uh, and this has been all over the the news in Taiwan. So the president uh, donned her uh, fatigues and her uh, matching camouflage face mask, and uh, went down to to see the training. And the the reservists are are planning or learning or re, uh, you know reminding themselves how to defend uh, a Taiwanese beach from an attack. So you can imagine who they've got in mind. Mm. And, and you paint uh, quite a bit, uh, quite a fashion picture uh, as well, there, James, uh, of uh, of the leadership uh, in Taiwan. Uh, James Chambers, our bureau chief uh, in Hong Kong, we're going to have to uh, leave it uh, there. Um, and staying on a, a fashion note, uh, groundbreaking fashion journalist Elsa Clench uh, has died at her home in Manhattan. She was 89, uh, though if you do look at some sources, they say that she was 92. Uh, with her CNN show Style with Elsa Clench, she opened up the world of haute couture uh, to a mass audience, bringing it to living rooms around the world every Saturday morning, also with lots of uh, smaller spots as well. I'm very happy to say that our Gillian Dubias uh, is in London, someone who was on the front lines of fashion with her many, many backstages. Uh, Gillian, good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Just uh, reflections on this. We were corresponding about it uh, about it l- last night. And it is interesting that this was 
I remember bumping shoulders with her. You probably mm. bumped shoulders with, and probably very, very big shoulder pads as well with her uh, many, many times across the, you know, uh, the, the time that you were, of course, doing uh, doing Fashion File. But uh, just your, your thoughts and recollections as someone is, who, is, who is a journalist, but also set a very, very you know, fresh and new tone for the world of fashion design in broadcasting. Well, it really was quite seismic because before she brought fashion to CNN, um, fashion was really the realm of a trade event. The fashion shows were for the exclusive buyers, sellers in the glossy magazines. And she lifted the curtain and she showed uh, people backstage and she showed people, uh, she gave them front row seats. And really as a reporter, she was a journalist. And uh, it's really hard to to explain the kind of iconic impact she had and how many people she influenced who then went on to work in fashion. And ultimately, she was just such a, a consummate professional. She had poise. And designers respected her. Huge, huge, huge respect. And she, as you said, she had she had extraordinary access as well, which was which was really part of it. Let's um, maybe ha- have a, a little bit of a of a listen uh, to those who maybe were not familiar with her segments on CNN, and and also when you it's when you, when you hear this as well. I mean, it really brings back a certain moment in in broadcasting. Let's have a listen. It's a fresh and sporty Chanel spring collection from Paris designer Karl Lagerfeld. Lagerfeld takes a tongue-in-cheek approach to men's white briefs, which he shows throughout the collection. He uses them to create a new look for layering. Then he piles on sheer black chiffon, open-work lace, or super soft knits. Milan designer Gianni Versace brings back punk, but makes it romantic rather than rough. He slashes and crinkles fabrics, but at the same time gives them a luxurious quality. Versace does extremely short day dresses and skirts and accents some outfits with oversized safety pins. Although Paris designer Karl Lagerfeld does the sexiest long skirts of the fall season, it's his jackets that steal the show. Lagerfeld's skirts reach almost to the ankle and have panels of transparent fabrics which allow the model's legs to flash through as they walk. His jackets, and he does dozens of them, skim the body and he cuts them with geometric seaming. His colours are deep and his fabrics modern and easy to wear. The best of Lagerfeld's evening dress is a sleek, black and see-through. And again, they're geometrically cut. Quite something to listen to. There's there's almost something about that script writing as well. You you can tell that this was a woman who started her career in in the trades. You don't have, people don't write scripts like that anymore. Oh, completely. And she's writing to picture as well, empowering up the image rather than duplicating it. And the wonderful thing is she really did talk about the clothes. She understood them. And because her background was as a trade journalist, she understood what uh, the consumer wanted to know, but also the buyers and the competitive designers. Like it, her, her, her programs were of interest to everybody in that sense, because she really did understand the clothes and she understood the designers and she let the designers speak for themselves before that time, really, uh, designers were not in front of the camera explaining their work. And it's interesting because it was also was treated, it was treated as something, you know, journalistic in that time as, as well. Uh, Juliet, you probably, you spent a bit of time um, in and around elements of CNN. Of course. Uh, yeah, of she, course. Was, she was like a hero. She was a m- m- un mito, come direbbero in italiano. And, I'm, and, and we loved her South African accent as well. But no, it's you, Aussie, you, actually. Oh, It's gosh, Aussie. I know. I thought she was South African. You did too. Thank I did. God. I, but then I you used met to think her. She, yeah. And you said, how about Cape Town? And she goes, no. 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 No, but she was Yeah. No, I know. No, many times. Yeah. Because, and. And, and that's you know going back to how I know Jillian, etc. That we we all did our 
Oh. moment working in, <laughs> in you know fashion. not in fashion but Modeled i mean on the front line of on, on the front line and there was that it was interesting that that you used to have the major news broadcasters that this was an industry that they were covering and and oddly these industries have never been bigger and yet you don't see that type of coverage if you look at the bbc if you look at cnn it's 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 all evaporated so true Florian also remembers her with great. Uh, yeah, I, 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 some, some, so, Florian is sort of just thinking, oh, okay, please don't come to me with a question about your thoughts and reflections of Elsa. Julian, I just want to ask you very, very quickly, why do you think that's happened? You know, at a time when there's so much money and there's so much investment and, and everyone talks about the power of these luxury goods companies that in fact, there, there's not much, you don't see well, much on it's television. Be, I, th- I think it's because of our iPhones, isn't it? Like when we were covering fashion, Tyler, we weren't even allowed to take cameras in. You had to have a special True. sort of license to be a crew. Now smartphones are everywhere and, and coverage is ubiquitous and it becomes eye candy and I think it it then there's not as much room or not you know room for for real proper solid journalism it's it's uh, it's eye candy well Gillian Debias thank you very much for your thoughts and reflections also Juliet Lindley uh, here also Florian Egley Des, uh, Desi Bandley looking after us uh, here in Zurich with audio our, pro- our program today was produced by Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie Nora Hall of course has been looking after us uh, on the audio front um, as well well, um, I'm very happy to say uh, that we just announced our Quality of Life conference in Paris. Uh, we heard a little bit around the world of Chanel, and we'll be holding it at the Disney M. And you can find out more about that. That's going to be on June 3rd. But before that, also, Juliet, uh, we're going to be going up to Sam Ritz as well because uh, we're having a little bit of an event uh, up in Samaritz uh, on the 1st and 2nd. It's the Monocle Weekender, so if people want to find out, of course, you can go to monocle.com. There's going to be more about that. Maybe you'll be able to make your way up. Florian, you Florian last, last moment to get on the trucks. boards as, as well. Uh, and we'll also be having a very special edition of Meet the Writers from up there. But have a very good week. I'm Tyler Burley. See you soon. Goodbye.